All right, tonight we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So you can open your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to 1 Samuel 18. As we continue through the Bible, verse by verse, now in the book of Samuel, written about 1000 B.C., the events take place between like 1100 B.C. to 1000 B.C. And we've transitioned from Samuel the prophet to Saul, the first king of Israel, to now the attention shifting to David. We saw where David took on Goliath last week in chapter 17, and now that shepherd boy has come on the scene, and the eighth child of obscurity in the house of Jesse is now front and center of the attention, the news of the nation of Israel, for he's a great leader, and as God said of him, he has a heart after God. And that, that's just, what could be greater than the Lord saying about you and me that we have a heart for him? So in chapter 18, after the great victory over Goliath, we pick up the text. Now remember, David had already been playing music as a teenager to soothe King Saul because of the stressing spirit upon him with the Lord having left him because the Lord rejected him. And so God put the future king with the current king and this teenager's leading worship to the Lord that's calming Saul and that they had that relationship, but David would go back and take care of the sheep at his father's house. But after he defeated Goliath, that's a game changer. And that's where we're at in the story now between these two men, the current king and the future king. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, that would be David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan is amazing. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We saw the battles of Jonathan. He initiated the campaign, the initial military campaign against the Philistines back in chapter 13. His dad blew the trumpet and took credit for it, but it was Jonathan who initiated the campaign. Then when the campaign stalled, it was Jonathan, his armor bearer, who went after the Philistines and God confirmed that they'd have victory and led a great battle victory. Pretty unprecedented. You could argue that Jonathan's victories uh, for the four or 500 years that Israel had been in the land were as good or greater than any of the previous victories other than Joshua himself when they came into the land around 1500 B.C. Jonathan is heir to the throne. Saul has two daughters, and he has Jonathan. And Jonathan is heir to the throne. Jonathan is a man of faith. Jonathan is a man for the Lord. Jonathan has victory. Faith in his resume says obedient and true to the Lord. Jonathan is underrated in our biblical record, often overlooked because of his dad's failures and because of the greatness of David, who did become the king after his dad. But Jonathan was the heir to the throne. And he was a, a bold man, a courageous man, but he was also a humble man. And in this text, in the introduction of this chapter, it should get our attention that the heir to the throne in his father's business, the one who's being groomed to run the enterprise, this huge, this country under a covenant with God, all this wealth, all this stuff, he's heir to the throne and this is important as the story unfolds for the next few weeks with Jonathan, David, Saul, and, the, and all the drama, including the sisters. The scene here could be so overlooked, but here's this man of faith who was the one they all talked about a few years earlier, but now has been replaced by the talk of the teenager who took down the giant from Gath, Goliath. And David and Jonathan immediately had this great fellowship because they were like-minded. 
They were both men of faith. They were both courageous men. They were both fearless men. And we know with David that he, he was a worshiper. We're also going to see in the text tonight that he had wisdom. And I suppose he probably had a good sense of humor. But one thing for sure is they were both men of faith. And it's like when you see after a football game, like when Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady say greet one another. You know, the quarterbacks look, look for each other after a game if you ever watch NFL football. And the quarterback, so when you see Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, like, you know, what's up? There's so much respect. In soccer, a lot of times they'll tra- trade the jerseys, right? When Christian Ronaldo will take off his jersey, he'll trade it with someone else, like maybe Messier. It's, it's just respect. There's a deep level of respect. Well, that's sports on planet Earth in 2022. This is the kingdom of God with two great men of God. And they naturally were drawn to each other, a great friendship. Unfortunately, those who are of the gay agenda, they like to say that this proves, or they try try to say David was gay with Jonathan here. There could be nothing more preposterous and even potentially blasphemous. I remember in the 90s, I'd even heard such a thing, but I was down in San Diego where the gay quarter is, and I saw this thing, it was called House of David. And I cannot tell you how sick I felt in my gut when I saw that. It just made me sick. So I at least have to address it so I can move on from it. But just know this. Since God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their gay, abnormal sexual lifestyle, he destroyed them, he judged them, he wiped them out. Since God speaks against it in his law as being completely forbidden and unnatural, it's actually unnatural, That's a powerful phrase that God uses. Unnatural and forbidden in his law. And it leads to further degeneration in human behavior. It does. Suicide is way higher in the gay community than it is in the heterosexual community, if you never knew that. It is way higher. And the violence within the community as well in the relationships. Statistics prove that. Although you don't get to see those statistics too often anymore because they're covered up. So God said of David that he had a heart for him heart after God. So it is absolutely preposterous to think that God would say of the man who would become king that Jesus would come from, that has a heart for God, that has anything to do with that which God destroyed an entire people group for, forbids in his law, and even when they wiped out the Canaanites coming into the land under Joshua, their primary sins were sex with animals, bestiality, the uh, uh, shedding of innocent blood with infocide, and homosexual lifestyle. Or now we use the term gay lifestyle. You can change the words. All it means the same thing. It's an abomination. So if you've ever heard that, forget that. Because the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, nothing's pure. And even in Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible tells us the things that are pure remain pure, and the things that are defiled remain defiled. And if you see beauty, you get beauty. And if you see perversity, you get perversity. So the Rainbow Coalition on Planet Earth 2022... They can make their house of David and say that kind of stuff and go to church and think they're fine and their conscience are seared, which they are. And they're delusional and they're demonically deceived. And they will stand before the throne of God where the real rainbow is and they'll be proven for their folly. And as Pastor Chuck said 50 years ago concerning this very text, they're blasphemy to even attribute such a thing. Because when God says that someone has a heart for him and then people try and say, well, that just shows this and that, it's, it's, it's preposterous. And it's blasphemous. So if you hear that, don't let it bother you. 
Because in reality, what you have here is a great friendship. Friendship at the highest level. There's eros, which is sexual in the Greek words, and then there's phileo, which is the deep friendship love. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And the love that Jesus showed the apostles, and you and I that give our life to Christ, that is the deepest love. Now, there's the agape love on the cross. That's unconditional. Sam talked about that in Corinthians a couple weeks ago. I talk about it fairly often. The classic Greek word reinvented by, reused by the Lord, rebooted, and it's a word that's reserved for selfless love of Christ on the cross. We understand that. We're saved by that. But Jesus and the apostles had this phileo love that was so beautiful in the relationship that he had with his apostles. He even had it, of course, with Judas. He loved Judas very much. Deep friendships, non-sexual friendships, deep friendships are rare, unique, and extremely special in the universe that Jesus Christ made. When you have true friendship, great friendship of like-minded purpose, character, world vision, destiny, they're so rare. Now, on my journey, I'm 61, and I've had some great friendships. In fact, one of my Carlsbad friends that I surfed with uh, texted me on Easter and sent a couple photos, and I texted him back, and it made me cry just thinking of the friendship I had with this guy in the 70s and 80s. Now, he doesn't confess faith in Christ, but just even going back in time when I was a, a great pro surfer, and he was a really good surfer, and we, were, we, were, we had a deep friendship, and I saw him in Florida last year when I was there on vacation, and it was renewed, and I just, I, I felt so much love for this, this man. When he went to jail for a year for drug dealing, him and one of my other closest friends, we went up to Campo to pick him up from jail. It was a fire camp, you know, like one year fire camp for drug dealing. And we picked him up and went surfing. And he still talks about it. every time I see him, how much it meant for him to come out of that, that sentence, that one year sentence. And there was Joey Brandon, Tony Mata, and we're picking him up to go surfing. As you live your life, you decide how much of a friend you're going to be. And the Bible tells us to have friends, one must be friendly. But even as you build friends and you have a team of people that support you and love you, recently when Ben Corson went through all of his stuff that I don't even know what he went through, and I don't really care, I don't want to know. But Ben Corson is very popular, John Corson's kid, and he had some kind of a thing that went on that got him in a bad look with people. But recently he came back on social media and he's rebranded himself and he's out there. And one of his posts got my attention because he said, you know, when you're down and out and things are really bad, you find out how many friends you really have and who your trends, true friends are. And you need to build those friendships and nurture those friendships. And you find out when you're down who's really with you. Whether it's self-inflicted, partially inflicted, or completely innocent. When you're ostracized, you find out who your real friends are. And in Proverbs, we're told there's a friend that sticks closer to a brother, and that friend is Jesus Christ to you and me, whatever we face. And that friend working in you and me to other people is the most beautiful thing on planet Earth. There's something so beautiful about true friendship. I was with Brian Jameson at Children's Hospital the day he found out that his daughter had a brain tumor because he knew what that meant. His eight-year-old daughter. And I just remember crying with him there, I think it was like the fourth floor. 
because he knew it was in front of him. He knew what the journey would happen for him because he had lost a parent and, a, and an in-law to cancer. And he knew what that meant. And I was with him. And we're so close. He's on our board. He's a treasurer. He, he, Donna Lindbergh does the accounting, and, then, and Brian balances the books and makes sure, like, we have a checks and balances and all this stuff. And he comes in here once a month, and sometimes I'm here, and we just start going. We start laughing. Like, we, we throw a mask at each other and laugh about things going on on planet Earth. We laugh. We cry. We talk about our kids, what they're doing, where they're at. We were at the Padre game a couple years ago, and we were all just dancing during the in-between innings and stuff. People were like, were like, whatever, man, life's short. Those friendships, you got to find them. You got to recognize them. You got to build them up. For years, I thought I would invest in my kids so my kids would take care of me when I'm old, but now I realize I invest in everybody, and someone's bound to take care of me when I'm old. When I coached little Cole Mazzarelli back there in He's the only kid I coach anymore in surfing. He lives in Vero Beach. He comes here for the championships. And I said, I'm just going to do it because he goes to the youth group with my son-in-law, Nate, and I'm just going to coach his kid. He's a good surfer, too, and it's fun to coach kids. I like to coach, you know. Once a coach, always a coach. And when I was coaching him last year during the Nationals in Huntington, I thought, you know, I had this random thought, well, what if I end up in convalescent care in Vero Beach and my kids abandon me? I bet Cole might take care of me. You just never know. Make friends and make true friends. Because I've got friends like Jim O'Connor that I went to Vermont with. I, I cannot see him for five years. We see each other. We can stay up all night and never go to sleep. Laughing. Just preposterous things, just laughing. Hysterically and then crying about things. That's the human experience. Everyone's talking about community, community, community. There's communities going off a cliff with the Antichrist in the end game. The real community is your heart of faith courageously living for Jesus and yoking yourself to the people who do the same and sharing the journey, not with a skewed concept that the world has with the devil guiding them, but with the purity that Jesus has when he says greater has no love than anyone than this and lay down their life for a friend. That's the kind of friendship we have here. Jonathan giving up, heir to the throne, executor of the state, beneficiary of the state, and he takes those weapons of victory. He takes that robe of recognition that it's all his to have, millions of dollars worth of wealth, and he puts it on David and says, you're my true friend, and we all know you're the one that's called to be the king, not me. That's true friendship, and it's worth noting in this text. May God help us to be those kind of friends and have that kind of love for people. That there's no skewed... You know, I, I say this fairly often. I haven't said it for a while, but... Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ doesn't think vulgar thoughts, skewed innuendos, crude vulgar jokes like David Letterman late at night or something, or whoever's late at night now, or like SNL? Aren't you glad that Jesus is never like that? He will never look at any human being and think a vulgar, vile, skewed thought. To the pure, all things are pure. And he's working that purity in his people as we yield our lives to him. Well, we're not there yet. But if we're a better version than 2021, good for you and good for me. Amen? Real friendship is unconditional. The Greeks thought they had the idea in phileo. Philadelphia is named after brotherly love. But this is brotherly love. And these are the kind of friendships that last for eternity. 
Can you imagine David and Jonathan in eternity? Man, talk about a fist pump on streets of gold. Verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he behaved wisely. And Saul sent him over the men of Israel. And Saul set him over the men of, it, of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David had great favor with everybody, except Saul. Now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from a slaughter of the Philistines, the Philistines, the, the women had come out of all of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines with joy and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward, and it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied and inside his house. That word prophecy means to babble. So we think he's actually speaking the word of God. Actually, a better translation of that Hebrew word is to be babbling. So David played music with his hand, as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David behaved wisely in all of his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. I want to draw your attention, well, in general, the story is like, wow, I mean, you got the promotion in the palace, and now your boss is trying to kill you, and he's your future father-in-law. But we should never underestimate how God uses people in our life to refine the things that need to be refined and removed from our life to get us to become the person of character, the woman of character, or man of character we're meant to be with our life. God had already told Saul that the kingdom was departed from him and given to another, so you can imagine Saul, when the women are singing the song, that he knows David's the one that's going to replace him. And of course, though not in the text, more than likely he would have been furious to see David, Jonathan not wearing his robe, the prince's robe. I don't know if David ever wore it, but just Jonathan not wearing it would be enough to just put Saul through the roof with anger. And he is becoming schizophrenic because, again, when you don't obey the Lord, God puts a hedge of protection around us. We understand that when we give our life to the Lord. The book of Job tells us when Satan goes, oh, but you've got a hedge of protection on him. Remove that hedge of protection, and then we'll see how he feels about you. And God did remove it so Job's faith could be proven, not because of his prosperity, but even his afflictions. And that's why Job said to his wife, we've accepted blessings from the Lord. Can we not accept adversity? Job did pass that test. But there's a hedge about us. But when we disobey the Lord, well, first of all, people that don't, have never given their life to Christ. He's good to them, but they don't have the same protection that we have because when we give our life to Christ, we're adopted in the family and we're in the trust and the estate. We are literally in his will. We're joint heirs with Christ, we're told that. And we receive glory for all eternity through our identity with Christ and we're being proven in this life to accept that wealth and be entrusted with that wealth in another dimension. So everything is a test here and everything is to make us capable for service in another dimension that we believe and see by faith. The world does not have a hedge about them. The universe does in the sense that, you know, when you read about asteroids coming or solar flares, forget about it. It's not over till it's over. 
nuclear wars, forget about it. It's not over till it's over. God's got the final say. He does have a hedge over his universe until the end game comes about, which is prophetically spoken of in his word. So don't lose sleep over it. But for individuals who have a relationship or a fear of God or knowledge of God, who harden their heart to the Lord and they go in a bad direction and they pursue evil things, the, the protection leads. We lose that protection, that hedge. And we can find ourselves in bad situations and we're like Superman with kryptonite in the room. Like if you know the story, kryptonite was one thing that Superman you know, would take away his, his power. That happened to Saul. He didn't do what God told him to do. We studied this in previous weeks and, and he's just given over and he doesn't have the protection. He doesn't have the blessing. David has the protection, the blessing. So Saul can throw spears. He can do whatever he wants to do. But the hand of protection is on David, not Saul. And Saul's going insane. But it says of David in verse 14 that he behaved wisely. It's going to say it again in the end of the chapter as well. It says in the very last verse of this chapter, so he behaved more wisely than the servants of Saul. We don't often think of David behaving wisely, do we? Because we think of Solomon, right? His son is the wisest man that ever lived. So it's noteworthy that David behaved wisely, which tells me that Solomon got an upgrade, which is kind of cool. It's not really the main thought. But we want our children to be more than we are, don't we, you, you older people? Like, don't you want your adult children to do things above and beyond you could have ever done? I don't want anyone to remember Joey Baran. I, I want them to remember when I'm gone what God's doing in the life of my kids when I'm gone. I want the hand of the Lord upon Hannah, Leah, Timmy, and Luke to be so profound that no one even remembers me. I want to be like Hudson Taylor's dad, who's just a faithful pastor in England, and no one knows his name. But everyone knows Hudson Taylor, who knows church history. We think of David as a heart for God and the Psalms and the Proverbs for Solomon, but know this, Solomon grew up in a house with a dad who did behave wisely and taught his son wisdom. And when his son became the king and God said, what do you want as a king? And he says, I want wisdom. It's a great legacy. It's worth noting parenthetically in this text. But that David behaved wisely because he's in a difficult situation and he behaves wisely. And some of us are in difficult situations. That's the human experience. We want to behave wisely. I'm flying home from Florida a week and a half ago. I'm on Delta. I'm wearing the mask. I don't have to wear it when I fly back to get Jennifer and come home. But I, I had to wear a mask. Like, I'm not going like, to... I'm not going to... Remember when we all laughed when they said, chew, take the food, put the mask back on and chew your food? Remember when I thought that was like ludicrous? It's just industry standard now because you just dumb it down, dumb it down, dumb it down, dumb it down, and just be so used to it. So when you fly up until yesterday, that's just the way it was. I mean, it's been going on for two years. So I'm like, yeah, you get on the plane. You gotta, I mean, I got, to, I got to Orlando Airport, and I didn't have a mask. I was like, oh, my goodness, I forgot a mask. It's Florida. Do you have to wear a mask in Florida at Orlando Airport? Well, I think it's federal law. I go up to TSA. I was like, dude, bro, do you have an extra mask? He's like, yeah, got to hook you up. I got the mask, so I'm going to wear the mask. There's a lot of people not wearing masks. I'm like, I think I'm supposed to have a mask. I know to get on that plane, I gotta have a mask. I get on the plane. The, stu- the flight attendants just do what they're doing. They work for Delta. They gotta tell people, put your mask on. It's their job. So why am I giving them a hard time? My daughter was a flight attendant for Delta. And even if she wasn't, why am I giving them a hard time? They're just doing their job. Like, it- are you really gonna make a scene over a mask on a plane in April of 2022 at this point when it's federal law, federal law, federal law, and they're just doing their job? <laughs> but wouldn't you know the people across from me, they wanted to, they wanted to 
create a scene out of it. A little kid, a six-year-old kid, all sassy and talking trash to a grown man who's the flight attendant. And the mom chirping and barking. I was like, what the heck's wrong with you people? You know, like, I just, that's behaving unwisely. Okay? Behaving wisely is like praying for those people to stop. Just stop already. And it's embarrassing for everyone around them. When you're acting like a fool, everyone knows you're a fool. So don't be a fool, WG, Joey Brand. Just behave wisely and honor the Lord. When you're being stupid, Jennifer doesn't like that word. Hopefully she's asleep by now. When you're being stupid, everyone knows you're being stupid. You're the only one that doesn't know you're being stupid. David behaved wisely in his conversations in the palace before the king throws a spear. He didn't like, what, you want some of this? I got Goliath's head in my locker. No, he's just like, we don't know what he did, but he did it twice. How do you act that, how do you act like your boss didn't throw a spear at you when he just threw a spear at you? You ever had that happen at work? Your boss throws a spear at you? And everyone's like, ooh. It's like a sitcom or something like that. And then 10 minutes later, they throw another spear. David didn't get fired. He kept his job. It's going to get dicier. But he behaved wisely. The Holy Spirit tells us in the same text where Saul, the boss, the king, is throwing spears at him, that he behaved wisely. May I just remind all of us tonight, in the name of Jesus, let's just behave wisely. But behave wisely with our spouses, if we're married, in our singleness, with our bosses, with our neighbors. Let's just behave wisely. And wisdom is the right actions. So knowledge is facts, understanding is what those facts mean, and wisdom is the plan of action to execute the right thing to do. And we're told there's no reason for anyone to be stupid in the name of Jesus on planet Earth ever. Because Jesus said, if anyone, well, the Bible says in James, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give it liberally. So if we're making a fool of ourselves, it's by self-determination. If we're making good decisions, walking in wisdom, it's by humming ourselves and being led by the Spirit of the Lord, because he'll give it to us. He promises it. And then Jesus said, seek, knock, and ask. So the next time someone's throwing spears at you, may God grant us the knowledge to understand. Wow, understand. Someone just threw a spear at me. The, the fact. Knowledge. That was a spear that just got thrown at me. Understanding. That's not just any spear. It's a king's spear. Wisdom. What do I do? Whatever he did, it was the right thing. Because we're told he behaved wisely. Privately in the palace with the king throwing spears at him and publicly before the people. When the women were praising him for greater glory than his boss, he just like, he didn't take the bait. He didn't repost that, that Instagram, that Facebook. He, he probably didn't have an account. Behave wisely. Now more than ever, right? Jesus' name. So it's great to have the Holy Spirit say that about us. Seriously, the Holy Spirit says he behaved wisely when his boss is throwing spears at him. That should get our attention. Verse 17, then Saul said to David, here's my oldest daughter, Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. So the guy that's throwing spears at you is offering you his daughter in her hand in marriage. 
I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Yeah, it's a great idea. So David said to Saul, who am I that, what is my life to my father's family in Israel, or my father's family in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? And David meant it too. But it happened at that time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Mahathite, as a wife. And Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, that's the other daughter, and told Saul. And the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. He's just out of his mind. He's gonna, you, you, want, you want your daughter to be so happy on her wedding day, so happy in her marriage. Like, and he's talking about like that her husband, she's gonna, that she'll be a widow and he's going to rejoice over it. It's insane. But you can't help people like Saul. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king is delighted in you and all, all the servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servant spoke these words in the hearing of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be the, king of, the king's son-in-law, seeing I am poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired, and therefore David arose. He went out and his men, and he killed 200 men of the Philistines, and he brought the four, their foreskins, and they gave him full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter's wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, and Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually, then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. So, of course, the Bible is a Bible, and the truth is the truth. So they went out, and they killed 200 uncircumcised Philistines. They mutilated their genitals and brought back the evidence that they killed 200 men of their enemies. Just like how the Indian tribe used to scalp or whatever and believe me, there's nothing new under the sun. The European people did the same thing, how to show how many people they killed in combat. So this is what David did. He doubled the dowry. So Saul says, hey, what are the chances he can kill 100 Philistines? They're ruthless, brutal people. He's not going to survive it. But the hand of the Lord is on David. He's got favor and blessing from the Lord. So he goes out and he brings back a double portion. He brings twice as much. And now Saul has to give Michael to him in marriage. And David's like, well, yeah, it's a little odd that my father-in-law, his future father-in-law throws spears at me, but, you know, like, I did good for him. You know, David was like that all the way to the end. When we get to 2 Samuel chapter 1, we'll see David, we're told that David became Saul's enemy in the last few verses of this chapter, but we're never told that David saw Saul as his enemy. Some people will make you and me their enemy just because of our faith in Jesus. In fact, most of the world out there that controls the media and the story makes us their enemy because they hate Jesus. But some people make you their enemy just because they don't like the way you look. You have the job that they want, the position that you, you have they want. When I was coaching the U.S. Olympic surf team and all that drama went on where I was accused of things, I didn't know my accusations. I didn't get to face my accusers. It was ridiculous. What an embarrassment to the USOC. But that's not the purpose of it. But a year later, 
talking to my former boss, who's no longer involved with it, he told me like what was really behind everything that came against me because it was very hurtful and it really one of the hardest things I ever went through. Because you give everything and then like people trying to destroy you, you don't know who's trying to destroy you or why they're trying to destroy you. But he said, you know what it really came down to, Joey, is this one family really wanted their friend to be the coach. I mean, you tell me I went to hell and back with this whole thing? Because one family who says they're Christians wanted their friend to be the coach instead of me. And you think, who tries to destroy a man and his reputation his entire life so you can have, your friend can have a position that's not even pain and is fleeting passy, passing? Well, that's what happened. It's a good thing it was a year later. It didn't bother me so much a year later. I was like, like, a year later. Yeah, all that, where I couldn't sleep, I felt sick, I had a rash, like when I went through a church split in 1990. Because they wanted their friend to be the coach. So they tried to destroy the current coach. But what's so unusual about that? Doesn't that happen to you at work sometimes? When you bid on a job, and someone else bids, and they're lying about you and your work? They give bad reports on you, your business on Yelp to discredit you. This is what people do every day. So here's the key thought. Just because you're their enemy, don't make them your enemy. Just because you're their enemy for any reason, don't make them your enemy. Life is too short for enemies. Life is a vapor. It's so fleeting. And we have no time to create embrace or carry along the baggage of enemies. It's just a vapor. We are called to forgive our enemies, to love our enemies. Now, when they're trying to destroy us or they're hanging us like the Nazis did to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and stuff like that, or abusing us in concentration camps like the Nazis did to Corrie ten Boom, I get it. But still, it is a vapor. And the Holy Spirit tells us the coming glory, the coming eternal weight of glory, that these light afflictions, which is that kind of stuff, is not worthy to be compared to the coming eternal weight of glory. But man, when it's raw, it's raw. And when it hurts, it hurts. And I'll tell you, it it hurt. Fourth quarter of 2018, I'll never forget how much it hurt me. It really hurt. And to find out a year later what it was all about, it's another just adding fuel to that hurt. Do you, do you have hurts that people add fuel to a year later? Do you have people that hurt you really bad years ago and they still hurt you? Every time they see you, they say something or do something to hurt you. Every time you're trying to go forward, they're trying to knock you back two steps when you're taking one step forward. Those enemies are real. You might have them your entire lifetime. You cannot control if someone makes you their enemy, but you can sure control whether or not you make them your enemy. And that's the distinction between the disciple of Jesus Christ and a woman or a man of the world. We forgive. We just can't carry the bitterness. We just cannot carry the bitterness. It's just, we can't. Chapter 19. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field and where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. When I uh, observe, I will tell you. What I observe, I will tell you. 
Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said, Hey, you know, let not the king sin against his servant. Hey, Dad, against David, because he's not sinned against you. Because his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. The Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, Okay, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul and was in his presence at that time, as in times past. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Here's something that gets my attention before we move on to verse 9 and verse 8. Again, you can't stop living because you have enemies, right? And if your boss is the enemy and God's saying, this is your job. Think about like in military. This is interesting. When I talk with my dad, because my dad was a career Marine, 22 and a half years in the Marine Corps, all over. Guam, Vietnam, 29 bombs, Korea, Japan, all these things. So, and he, he was a company guy. He's in authority, he's under authority. He retired a lieutenant colonel. My mom said he could have been a colonel or even more, but he didn't want to go a certain route the way it works in the military. But I talked a lot with my dad about three, four years ago when he was a little bit sharper and he had some really good stories. But he'd just tell me, in the Marine Corps, when, when you get moved to Camp Lejeune and you have a bad boss, you got a bad boss. And he's going to be your boss for about 18 months. You got a med cruise, and my dad did a med cruise in the 50s, and you got a bad captain and he's over you. That's what you got. And you're going to go to Rocket Gibraltar, Italy, Greece, and you can decide whether that guy up there in the captain's wheelhouse is going to wreck your trip and your life, or you're going to enjoy your life in spite of that person in the wheelhouse. And my dad would emphasize in the military, and this is what's so hard about military, you know, you're in authority, you're under authority, and even in the famous series, it's a true story about the Band of Brothers, the 101st Airborne, World War II, those guys were trained by a guy they did not trust to lead them in combat in Europe. They were convinced to get them all killed. It's a true story because I read uh, Captain Winter's book and the whole story about what really went on. And the, the HBO special is very accurate to the people involved. But in the end, it is what it is. In Gallipoli, all those Australians, all those Aussies, those Anzac troops, oh, there was a particular day where thousands of them were gunned down by the Turks. And every one of them going over the top knew that they weren't going to make it. And yet they did it, what they had to do. And there's people that blow the whistle and expect you to go over the top, particularly in military, because this is a good analogy. And I, I'd ask myself if I watch like Gallipoli or something like that. I'm an Aussie in 19, you know, 16, and I'm there. I'm so, oh, how would I handle this? Do you ever like watch things like that? Like, how, how would I handle this? You know, like, but in the end, You cannot let that person stop you from being who you're meant to be. And that's what the, what the Holy Spirit has in mind in the book of Colossians, where it says, whatever you do, do it hardly as unto the Lord, not unto men. So if you have a boss that's trying to put you over the top to be mowed down by the Turks, or you have a boss that's just going to mess with your head all day long when you're a pencil pusher at Camp Pendleton in the 50s, and you're a captain, and they're a colonel, and they're just, they just, you can't stop living you got to get up, go to work, and do your job. And that's what I like about verse 8. David doesn't know if Saul's really trying to kill him or not trying to kill him or whatever, but you know what? He's got a job to do. And he's the commander of the armies of Israel. And he's got to go fight Philistines. 
And whether his boss has his back or not, he's not doing it as unto Saul. He's doing it as unto the Lord. And therein is the key, body of Christ. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord in the strength of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ. And whatever men, women above you, around you, hate you, try to undermine you, or get you off your game, you cannot stop doing what you're called to do. Life is so short. Body of Christ, listen to me very carefully. We cannot lose one day of 24 hours wasted in in paralysis because someone around us hates us and considers us their enemy. We got to get up and do what we're called to do that day for Jesus Christ, whether they're cheering for us or undermining us. God has our back. And if you're David and your job is to fight Philistines and your boss is trying to kill you, not this week, but maybe next week, you can't be crippled like, what's he going to do? How's he looking at me? And you're going out to war to fight the Philistines like Saul's giving you that look like, is that a good look? Is that a bad look? You can't go there. You have to protect your headspace. And it belongs to Jesus Christ. Because there in 2 Corinthians, we're told to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. We own our thoughts as unto the Lord. No man, we own our conscience and our thoughts and our heart. No man, no woman, for us or against us, good or evil, can keep us from the holy ground that belongs to the Lord to love the Lord, seek the Lord, serve the Lord, and do what he's called us to do this day. I thought this day. I'll put Spanish and Russian together. At that dia, one Russian word, one Spanish word, this day. Nothing can, because I've lived long enough to see how people quit living for, for a week, a month, years, because someone is trying to undermine them, and they never get past it. And they never live, and they waste their life focused on what this person is doing, some big distraction, and what they may or may not do. You got, you got to live life. Talking to my good friend Steve like 15 years ago, multi-million dollar, multi, well, he's extremely wealthy financially. He's very generous with his wealth as well for ministries. But one day we're hanging out and he's talking about all these lawsuits. He's got multiple lawsuits at any given time. He's got lawsuits because he is not fair to Muslims, evidently, and, or not fair to gays, whatever. And he's, he says that he's got multiple lawsuits at any given time. So he owns all these properties and personal and successful business. I said, like, how do you wake up with having multiple lawsuits? And he told me something very insightful. He said, well, number one, good lawyers. Same thing Pastor Chuck told me, by the way. Good lawyers, for what it's worth. So God bless good lawyers. He said, good lawyers, and you just have to enjoy the day for what God's given you. Because men will always sue men. Women will always sue women. People always try and take what belongs to someone else. And they'll always bring false accusations. You cannot stop living and doing what God's called you to do because you have multiple lawsuits. That's what lawyers are for. Let them, let them deal with that stuff. It's a good word. Because I've watched so many people. I prayed with a man here when we started this church 15 years ago. And he told me he was ripped off for $5 million in his company. His partner burned him for everything. And I go, what did you do? He goes, no, nah, I just started over again. I'm like, no, no lawyers. No, I don't have time for it. My daughters are 15 and 16. I don't have time to wreck the last few years at home worried about trying to get $5 million back. God gave to me once, he can give to me again. I was like, there's a man who sleeps with peace with Jesus Christ. See, I, when you talk with people and they tell you stuff like that, you know what you need to do? Get your memory stick, put it in there, and download that file. Sam knows. Sometimes someone's talking, I'm like, he's like, Joey's got his memory stick out. You're talking, I'm just downloading. Da, 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 da. I'm just downloading what you're saying. 
Because we need to learn from people like that and be inspired by people like that. David had to go fight the Philistines. And just because your father-in-law is trying to kill you every other week doesn't mean you stop living. Body of Christ, in Jesus' name, WG, we got to keep living. You can't, you can't, you got to protect your headspace. <laughs> I'm not going to let a federal mandate bother me on the plane coming home. I just don't have time for it. Just, you know what? I'm meditating on the word of God and what's coming next with the kingdom. Getting ready for eternity. I don't have time for it. And someone needs to tell that kid not to talk like that when he's six years old. That's embarrassing. But his mom was worse. I was like, what do you do? I smiled at the flight attendant. With my mask on, but you, know, you can read the eyes. You know, we've learned how to do that. It's the new language, smiling with the mask on. But hopefully we'll never see it again. Verse 9. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. <laughs> David was playing music with his hand. And uh, then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. So Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he, he went and he fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in his bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, covered it with claws. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul sent messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was an image in the bed, and they covered goats here for his head. Then Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemies away so they escaped? And Michael answered Saul and said, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So she fabricates the story, but obviously everyone's pretty scared of King Saul. He's the tallest man. He's the most powerful man. He's pretty imposing, even for his own daughter. Verse 18, so David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in uh, Nioth. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as a leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. This is a different word than the one we saw earlier. Verse 21, a different word in the Hebrew. So the prophesying earlier is Babel. This is more prophesying proper. Verse 21. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. And so he asked and said, where's Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they're in Nioth and Ramah. So he went there to Nioth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked. All that day, I'm sorry, I just think it's funny. And all that night, therefore they said, is Saul also among the prophets? Remember when Saul prophesied the first time back in chapters 10? They're like, oh, Saul, one of the prophets. So the first time he's like that in chapter 10, is like Saul's prophesying. Like, oh, Saul, one of the prophets. Here he is. He's naked. And he's prophesying. Like, I don't know. I just think it's funny. I just got to say, I think it's funny. And it's so funny, it scares the hell out of me. Literally, hell, like right out of me. Because what could be worse than to, in chapter 10, be prophesying properly, favorably with the Lord, and then you're like Balaam's talking donkey here in chapter 19. I'll tell you that Saul is stripped naked and prophesying before David and Samuel. It's like an enigma. It's an enigma to end our text tonight. 
But it goes back to what the word of God says, that he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And I want my sanity till the end, don't you? Yeah, because we see people get fuzzy when they get older, and, and, and you see people get Alzheimer's, and you know, that's, that's physical, but, I, and even if I'm missing parts, I just want every part that's left to be a good part, don't you? Like, because with Alzheimer's, you can get your, your brain's kind of like Swiss cheese. That's actually what happens. So it's not all the same for everybody. Alzheimer's has different effects on different people. Whatever's there, I want it to be good. I don't want it to be bad. I don't want any bad files, neither do you. So scrub your files and keep them pure. Amen? Good files. Because I don't want to be naked prophesying when I'm fighting against God trying to kill his people. That's like a really bad look before eternity. The only thing worse is to be at the witch in, in, in Endor, which is his ending. God gives some people over, and that's not my business. Who else he might give over, whatever. I just want to make sure I'm never given over. And the same goes for you. We need to walk in holiness, reverence, respect, and the fear of the Lord. And we want to be hanging out with Samuel or with David being pursued by Saul. That's one thing. But to be like Saul, that's a whole nother. So as we wrap it up tonight, I just like how David, when he fled... And he didn't know who he could trust or whatever. Or he certainly doesn't know what's going on with Saul, but he fled for his life. Isn't it nice that there's someone he trusted who was like-minded with him? He can't go to Jonathan here, but Samuel, he's like-minded with too. If you're going to be in a foxhole, let it be with someone who's like-minded in faith and conviction as you are in the last chapter, if that's your end. Because that's how we started tonight, right? David with Jonathan. And here's David with Samuel. Think about who you hang out with. Think about who you're yoked with. And may you be yoked with the Jonathans and the Samuels of the world. Because if you're that woman or you're that man, you are blessed and you're going to have a good ending. Amen?